Normally right now we're in the book of Acts on Sunday morning, the book of 1 Thessalonians on Wednesday night, but I did a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the last message of that series, and, but it is much more appropriate for a Sunday morning message, so I am bringing it to today's service. So Matthew chapter 7. Also forgot to announce a couple of things. Remember, December 5th here in just a couple of weeks, we're going to have a pastor up from Utah preaching for us. Dave Malinak will be here all day that Sunday with us. But Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to start reading there in verse number 13. And again, what we're going to see here through 13 through 23 is three roads to hell. Christ is giving us here three different roads to hell. Let's go ahead and start in verse number 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes, or thorns, or figs, or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil, evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he, doeth, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, Lord, I certainly do love you, and Lord, I ask for your help this morning. I pray for your mercy and your grace, Lord, I pray that you control what I say and how I say it. Lord, please, may your spirit have free course. I pray that your spirit would be able to work on our hearts. Lord, I, uh, for those here right now who have never truly been converted, Lord, we do pray for that conviction and that drawing. Lord, I pray the message of the gospel would be clear in their mind and in their heart. Lord, that even through this, that this morning they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may the road to that be clear. Father, for those of us who have made that decision and have come to Christ, Oh, Lord, may you stir our hearts to draw even closer to you, to be so thankful for what you have done for us. Lord, that we can have a greater appreciation and get just a greater glimpse of how wonderful our salvation really is. Lord, so may you be glorified this morning. Control what I say and how I say it. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Christ, of course, is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. He has been really preaching on what True religion looks like. Israel by this time has been uh, bound by this pseudo-Judaism that has come into existence during the time of Christ. It 
has added so much to the law of God, so much via tradition, and, and things were distorted. It became works-based and outcome-based and, and charged by two different groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it was getting so off-base, and he was using the Sermon on the Mount on the Mount to deconstruct this form of Judaism that had come into existence and trying to demonstrate and preach and teach what genuine, true religion looks like before God. And now as he finishes this, he's coming to such an important part. The danger here of the three different roads that lead people to hell. Listen, the truth is the battle for the souls of men is very real. That's, not just, that's just not a cute little saying. That battle begins the moment, the moment a person is born into this world. That battle begins. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, he has... Uh, 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 he has many different weapons at his disposal. The Bible teaches us he blinds men. He's a master of deceit, a master of delusion. And the, the focus of his battle comes down to the souls of men. You can think out of his, once he himself and, and those that chose to follow him were cast out of heaven, we find him in the Garden of Eden. Once again, because the battle for the souls of men was online. And he knew if he could just get them, just get them to disobey God. See, his anger isn't against us, his anger is against God. He knows what God has done for us, he wants to thwart that, he wants to fight that. And so there's, a, there's an actual battle that takes place for the souls of men. When one dies physically, we know what happens, we don't have to speculate. The word death itself, literally, coming from a Greek, it literally means to separate Death is the separation from the soul from the body. If you've ever been present when somebody, I have many occasions, uh, from whether it's family members or just simply being a pastor or a missionary. I've been there many times where I've been in the room or right with the person when they've taken their very last breath. And you can see a difference instantly. It's not just that their heart stopped. It's not just that they took their last breath. There's an immediate, noticeable difference. The soul has departed. It's gone. The souls of the redeemed, the Bible teaches us, are immediately in the presence of Christ in a place that we call today heaven. The Bible says for those who are redeemed, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The doctrine of soul sleep is not true. The very moment a Christian dies, they are in the presence of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul stated, going into Philippians chapter 1, when he knew he was facing uh, um, uh, execution, he had told them, he goes, he goes I know to de- he, he knew to depart to be with Christ, is, he looked forward to that. He knew the moment I die, I'm going to be with Christ. But he knew it was beneficial for them if he remained. However, the Bible teaches us that for those who have not been redeemed, where there's never been that genuine conversion through what Christ did for them on the cross, the very moment they die, they find themselves in a very real place called hell. We have an example. I'm not going to turn there for time's sake, though, in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, many Bibles labeled as a parable. I I don't believe it's a parable at all. Um, Names are given. Christ does not give names when he gives parables. 
but I, I don't necessarily have to argue that either way right now for what is taught in there. But you have, you have the story of a rich man who dies. His name isn't given because the Bible says for those in hell, their name is forgotten. And so the moment he dies, that rich man finds himself in this place of torment, begging just simply for, just for one, one drip of water to hit his tongue. The Bible has a lot when it describes hell. It calls it a place of darkness in Matthew twenty-two thirteen. This just isn't any average darkness. This is without any source of light whatsoever. A complete and utter darkness that the souls that are in there will experience for an eternity. A complete and solid darkness. It's referred to as a place of gnashing of teeth. Several places describe it as such. Matthew thirteen forty-two being one of them. That's a result of the pain that the people are in. That's a result of the anguish that is there. The Bible calls it a place of weeping, Matthew twenty-two thirteen. You can just imagine the weeping that's taking place when the reality sets in of where they're at. A place of unquenchable fire, Matthew three twelve. A furnace of fire, Matthew thirteen forty two. A place of wailing, Matthew thirteen fifty six. An everlasting fire, Matthew twenty five forty one. A bottomless pit, Revelation nine one and two. A place of no rest, there in Revelation chapter fourteen. Think of that: no rest. There's no stopping. There's no time out for this place. It doesn't end. It's a reality. The reality of hell itself should motivate us as Christians to keep ourselves as close to God as possible because there's just too much at stake. I mean, really, just think how different we would respond to our Christian faith if, we, if the Lord just took us and gave us a literal glimpse of hell. Just for a few seconds. It would completely change us. That reality of hell should motivate us. It's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we just don't have time just to skip devotions and, 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 and play games with our Christian life. It should motivate us to live right before this world. We are the salt. We are the light. We have the answer. <clears throat> this certainly is a place that no man wants to go to. It's a place that's denied today by many, quote, Christian groups, Christian cults. The SDAs, the LDSs, which is the Mormon Church, Jehovah Witnesses. It's amazing. In the 19th century, the devil was at work coming up with a lot of lies and deceit. I'll be hitting more on that when I get into the message. But he was, he was really at work with a lot of different isms that were coming into existence, including things like atheism which was there prior, but boy, when evolution came, came around, mm, boy, did that, that thing spring into action. 1988, this is interesting, a Gallup poll was done. And they basically asked, uh, I remember the thousands of people that were asked to, but for their survey to try and get a, an idea of the nation of where it was at. How many people saw themselves that if they were to die, they believed that they would, in fact, go to heaven? And of those asked, 77% said, I got an excellent chance 
to make it to heaven. 77% said that. They also asked the question, how many of you believe in the same poll um, that if you die, you would end up in hell? Well, hardly anybody said yes to that. Only 6% said, I have a reasonable chance to end up at hell. There's a good possibility that that's where I would go. Yet we're going to see from our text, those numbers are almost reversed in reality. Our text deals with three roads that lead people straight to hell. These, aren't, they aren't, these are not exclusive, but they certainly are probably the three biggest tools used to send people to hell. The first road we're going to see is that of following the crowd. The second is that of following false teaching, false preaching. And the third is that of following a works-based religion, a false profession. So let's get into this here this morning. First off, the road following the crowd. That's in verses 13 and 14. The Bible says in verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. This is the road of following the crowd. There's two roads in this that that Christ describes, an easy road and, and a narrow road, a wide one and a narrow one. The easy road here is the one that's the same one everybody else is on. It's broad, it's wide, there's multitudes that are on this road. Each one is sure and the other, we're just fine. Look how many people are on this road. Surely we must be okay. There's multitudes on this road. I'm alright. I think of all my friends, everybody I've known, all my family. We're on this road. Surely we're okay. They're deceived. They are far from it. Again, they take comfort by how many other people are on this road with them. And they they even make jokes about hell. Well, if I'm there in hell, I'm going to party with all my friends. Oh no, you're going to be in place of complete and utter darkness. Complete. Without rest. You're not going to be there partying with your friends. You're going to be in regret, anguish, pain for an eternity. People on this road are distracted by things of the world in different ways. They give little attention to spiritual matters. They just don't have time for that. Maybe making money is what their life is all about, so they live to that end. Hardly ever given a thought or a notion to things of eternity. That's where the different deceit of the devil comes in. You don't have to think about that. After all, we've just evolved. There was a big bang one day. And it threw this amazing universe into existence. That is such complete nonsense. Look around you at the beauty, at the perfection. Everything screams creator. Everything. We are spinning at the perfect speed, at the perfect distance from a ball of fire. It just happened. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Do you ever wonder, again, when you stand on the ocean, that that feeling of awe that you get? Do you think that's because you evolved? 
No, it's because you're created by this amazing creator who put this almost artistic uh, uh, um, part of our, of, of our creation, of our life to us, that when we see those things, we're just in awe. Want to know why? So we give him glory and think, wow, look what he did. But in this group, life just passes them by. They're brainwashed by a television, thinking they don't even need God. Many will just sit down day after day after day, believing what that television puts before them, and how they portray uh, any, any uh, um, resemblance of Christianity is portrayed in a, in a almost a nutcase fashion. They see that. What they are is simply amused. Know what the word means? You're not thinking. You're not thinking. Uh is a negative. It's non. Muse is to think. They're just amused. Certainly the devil doesn't want them to begin to think about eternity. Not at all. They're just amused. Never giving any serious thought to it. Just ignoring that. Denying that inner feeling that hits them at times. Telling you're missing something. Something's wrong. Something isn't right. For some in this group, it's simply all about pleasure. They see the, the lies of this world that you just live for pleasure. He who dies with the most toys wins. No, he who dies with the Lord Jesus Christ wins. But they just live for the next party, the, the, next, the next time they can get drunk, the next time they can get high, the next time they can spend time with their friends. Taking comfort again by all those who are on the same road. Yet the fact is, destruction is coming. This is a broad road that is so easily traveled because it's usually without persecution. It's without suffering. It's without sacrifice. You can do what you want. Believe what you want. Whatever works for you. And that's what this road is about. But the end is destruction in hell. The road you want is that narrow road. It is narrow. And there's few there be that find it, as he says. But on that road, you will find those that have learned to deny self. Those who aren't living for the here and now. Those who have actually come to Jesus Christ for a conversion, that straight gate. I, I think I, I brought him up before. And uh, I brought him up, actually, I think several times here from the pulpit. But I do, he is coming to mind right now in his conversion because he was on this road and that is that doctor that came to know Christ when I was in New Guinea. He showed up in New Guinea as an atheist uh, from England. And before I met him, he, we're, again, we're uh, on New Ireland, one of the islands, but he was on the main island in the highlands. And him and his family, him and his wife, he had a couple of little girls, and he wanted to do some good. He was a medical doctor. His wife was a geologist, so they decided to give something back. But they were on this road right here. He would tell you, this is the road I was on. And so he went to PNG as part of, a, I believe he joined the group, the Australian Doctors Group, who does a lot of different relief work and help in, in, in uh, third world countries like New Guinea. So he came over, he ends up in the highlands, he's in the highlands, and he gets in a remote area working at a clinic, and there was a missionary there. And the missionary was there with his family. Now, he's only in for a, a, a few months to a year, and he's out. That's it. But he comes across this missionary, who this is now his home from the United States. 
And he said, I got to know him. Remember, I met him when he showed up. In, this is after he left the Highlands. He came to our island. And for the first time, we had a doctor. And we had heard of each other, but I hadn't met him yet. He was there about a month. And finally, I was at the age, we had, a, we had an age station. I was at the age station, and I see this other white guy, and, and we start to, we're getting ready to pass each other. We both stop, and he said, you must be the missionary. And I said, you must be the doctor. And immediately he told me that he was a Christian and he had an English accent. And so I asked him immediately, I said, wow, I said, to be honest, I have not met too many men from Europe that simply boldly became, uh, 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 proclaimed Christ. And, and anyhow, he told me, I, he said, I, really, I just got converted. And then that's when he got into that story. He said, as I got to know that missionary and his family, this is exactly what he said. He goes, you know what I found out? They were normal. He said, honestly, the only thing I knew of Christians is what I saw, this is the exact words, what I saw on a television. That's all I knew. And he said, this guy was normal. And he said, what I knew was, he really believed whatever he taught. He goes, I saw how they were living. They really believed it. Anyhow, that man ended up leading him to the Lord. But for a while, he took comfort. He was on the same road as everybody else. But then he heard truth. That's the road you want. And he chose the road that few find. Next, the road of the false prophets, false preaching. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And then he goes on from 16 through 20 to stress. You know them by their fruit. That's how you're going to recognize this group. By their teaching, by their life. What's the results? What is it that you're seeing? And of course, during this time, this would, this would hit those listening to him hard. Because this would be dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I've seen the fruit that was in their life. But that telling, listen, something's wrong. Listen, the true test of a prophet is not his charismatic personality. It's not his eloquence or the size of his following. But it's the doctrine in the life. <clears throat> he says, you look at their actions, you look what fruit's being produced. Too often we can get carried away by charismatic personalities and completely ignore truth. This is a road where, there are, this, this is a road where there's a group that are actually seeking God. But they fail to seek truth in order to find God. It's following man instead of God's word. Listen, as Paul stressed, you had better be holding forth the word of life that you have not run in vain. We have to understand, the devil will have his false preachers and false teachers out there. We see it in different, we'll tie into this here in a minute, different world religions, but even within Christianity. I mean, remember, I, I don't know which series I was just going, I think in the series on Acts, we, I just got done talking about that, how... Right there in the first century, in the first 10 to 20 years of church growth, the devil got into a series of churches that were once solid and immediately had deception come in and they changed the gospel. The churches in Galatia. They actually left the gospel. Just because a group claims, claims to be Christian, you have to know them. You have to know this book. To know what's true and what isn't. We don't base it on, on experience. We base it on truth. 
Again, we can think of all the different groups that have come about that go against truth. We can think of the, uh, of the Mormon church. I'm certainly thankful for those who have gotten saved and come out of that. But again, they had to get rid of this book. So they have their own, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon. It has to explain the different teachings that go directly against what is here. You say, well, like what teachings? Like the fact that Jesus is God. He's not some being between man and God. He is the Creator. Again, that is one of those groups when the devil is at work in the 19th century. Um, <clears throat> you know, with the, the different leaders that... Uh, I won't go into all that, but yet, we also have the Jehovah Witness. H.T. Russell, 19th century as well. They, too, had to go against truth. So they created their own translation of the Bible. The New World Translation. As well as all their different materials from the Watchtower Society. Simply going against truth. I mean, there's just multitudes and multitudes who fall prey to this. We can think of groups from Ellen G. White with the STA movement. Mary Baker Eddy back in that time with the, what had come in the Christian Science Group. And all these deceived just millions of people by false teaching just coming in. <clears throat> we can think of the results in different world religions that are blinded. Out soul winning yesterday, I think Levi was with me at the door and we ran into Buddhist. But you can think of, of the devil's distortion and what was going on in Asia for a few thousand years. Getting into pantheism and polytheism, a belief that God is in you and God is in this. Or a belief in a multitude of different gods. There is one God, one Lord. That's it. There isn't more than one. There isn't two. There isn't three. There isn't five thousand. God is not in the flower. He's not in that piano. He is God. He's His own being. The Creator. But there are multitudes today who are blinded by a false teaching and a false, uh, a, a false preaching. And they too put people on a wide road to destruction. And then the third, this is a scary one. Look at this one. These are those in church. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... Many, not a few, will say to me in that day, he's talking about Judgment Day. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Again, these perhaps might be some of the most terrifying verses in the entire Word of God. See, we have those that were blinded by false teaching. We have those that are just following the crowd on that, that road and taking comfort in that and just blinding. But these are those in church. These are Sunday school teachers. These are deacons and pastors. These are those that, are, that, are, that think everything is great. These are those that said preaching in Christ's name. 
Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? Will we prophesy name? They, they preached in his name. Cast out devils. Many wonderful works. Get the picture here. What Christ said, Christ said is going to happen. When judgment day comes, and Christ is revealing, just judging, showing here's your sin, you're going to hell. And they're there, and this group is genuinely stunned. Wait, how am I in this group? I believe Christ, these are those who believe that Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the dead. They do. They preached in his name. But look, their own mouth condemns them. What was their faith in? When they come and the judgment day hits and they're getting ready to get cast in the lake of fire, they say, wait, 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 Lord, Lord, wait! Look what I've done for you. I've prophesied in thy name. I've cast out devils in thy name. I've done many wonderful works. Their faith is in what they did. There was a fundamental misunderstanding of the very gospel. No one, is, no, no, no one escapes Judgment Day because they're a pastor. No one escapes Judgment Day because they think they do many good works. Nobody escapes Judgment Day because you turned over a new leaf. Salvation is not in your works. It's not in what you do for Christ. It's in what He did for you. Their faith was in their actions. Listen, salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. They thought salvation was theirs. They certainly knew about Christ, but they really never understood what His death and resurrection were all about. These were like those, I'll read the verse, I'm here, in Proverbs chapter 30. In verse 12, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. These are like those that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Those going about to establish their own righteousness. They have a zeal for God, but they're simply establishing their own righteousness. Listen, you will stand before Almighty God. Here is the simplicity that is the gospel. What puts you on that, that narrow road? It's you understanding, as the Bible says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. You will stand before Almighty God, and I am telling you, He absolutely will judge you. In Romans chapter 2, when He judges you, He's going to use His law, and He's going to judge your life. He is. He's going to use His law, He's going to judge your life. And you know what? Just like me, you're guilty. There's not one person in here. Not one person in here who has not broken God's law. Not one. God's not going to compare you next to your neighbor. He's not going to compare you uh, um, to those in a prison somewhere. He's going to compare you next to His law. And you fall way short. You're not even close. It's, it's, it's not even, you're, you're, not, you're nowhere near the ballpark here. 
Here's the problem. A hundred percent of those found guilty are cast into a lake of fire. You can't say them, but Lord, look what all the good I've done. Listen, any more than you can take, you can take a murderer before a, an earthly judge who has just been found guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt of his crimes. And he tells that judge, judge, no, you don't have to send me to prison. Look over here at all the good I've done. You think that judge is going to say, yeah, you know what? You're a pretty good guy. I'm, I'm just going to forget about you killing all those people. Go free. Is that going to happen? And if it did happen, we would be outraged. That judge did what? You know what we say? There was no justice. i got news for you. The Bible describes God as a just God. You're going to have no argument before him, just like here with these, these people here. You're going to have no argument when it, to come from, but Lord, Lord, wait! I went to church! I was baptized! I was in church every single time the doors were opened. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You see, something has to take place when you stand before God in judgment. Don't miss this. Where you look perfect. And none of us are. That's God's God's requirement isn't that your good works outweigh your bad works. Do you know that? He's not going to scale your life. Uh, Greg is a pretty good guy. Come on in. That's not how this is going to work. He's going to judge you. You're going to be guilty. Something has to happen where you look perfect. That's the reason Jesus Christ, God, became a man. Did you know that? To make you look perfect. That's why he did it. God becomes a man. The Bible refers to him as the second Adam. You want to know why? The reason why we have this sin nature is because of what happened in the Garden of Eden with the first Adam. He sinned and condemned all of us. So you know what God did? I, 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 shouldn't, I don't want you to think I'm making this up. This is a great, great verse. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5 here. You can see it starts in verse 14, dealing with Adam and sin and death. and So hell coming as a result of Adam's transgression upon all of us. Look at verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, that's Adam going back to verse 14, many be dead. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is, the, so is the gift for the judgment by one, the condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. What it's saying here is, because we are condemned because of the actions of one man. We're all plunged into sin. We sin because we are sinners. Now, and so he says, but God sent a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. God became a man. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. But look at that punctuation. It's not finished. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus Christ, 
the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For, as by the disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The entire reason Jesus Christ came to this earth was to make you perfect, righteous. How did he do that? He becomes a man, the second Adam. This is what he did as a man. It's incredible. The only one who's ever done it. He lived a perfect life as a man. Completely perfect. So understand this. As a man, you finally have the very first man in the history of the world who could stand before the Father at Judgment Day. And know what the Father could say? For the only person ever in all of history, you're innocent. You're perfect. You have not broken the law. You fulfilled it. But get this. He did that for you. He did that for you. Notice how it talked about Romans 5, about us being made righteous. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The very last verse teaches us what happened on the cross. This verse explains to you, and I give you the very true phrase that Christ died for you. This explains it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him, Jesus, to him there is Jesus, that's the, the pronoun there, that should be Jesus. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Christ was perfect. He had no sin. So God the Father has made the Son to be what? To be sin for us. It's talking about what happened on the cross. Now look what it says. That we, that's us, you and I, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And as Romans chapter 5, the verse I read, called that justification. So, when I say that Christ died for you, what I'm saying is this. Don't miss this, because this is the simplicity that's in Christ. This is what puts you on that narrow road where you're no longer trusting. In, well, I've been baptized. I've joined this church. So you don't even care. You're just worried about partying and money. Listen, the day's going to come. You will find yourself in a very real place called hell. Or maybe you've been, maybe you have been following false teaching and false preaching. I was there. I thought because of communion and, and transubstantiation and baptism in my church. The problem with that, it wasn't in here. My justification isn't because of my church. It's because of what God did through His Son, Jesus Christ, to make me perfect, to make me righteous. It's not that I'm perfect, I'm not. None of us are. But what happens is this. So let's say this is Judgment Day. The Bible says in Revelation 20, God's going to open books. One of those books is going to have your name on it. He's going to open it up. And here's all the charges, if you will, against you. Every time you've broken His law. Everything's recorded. And by the way, there is no defense. He's God. He knows everything. There's no defense. It's over with. He's just showing you, here's your guilt. All right? So here's your name. Here's everything. Now, we got a, we got, let's say we got another book. And we have Jesus Christ up here. All right? So here he is. Here's, here's his name at Judgment Day, if you will. 
And underneath his name is nothing but perfection, righteousness. Is there any sin here? No, there's nothing. No sin, just righteousness. So here's your name in, in your book. You're not looking too good. You're guilty. But here's Christ. It's perfect. It says, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made, made, the righteousness of God in him. So when I say that Christ died for you, get this, here's your name and all your sin. Here's Christ and all of his righteousness. When I say that he died for you, you can take Christ's name and remove it and put it over here. You can take your name and remove it and put it over here. Now, what happened? God hath made him to be sent for us. All of your sin is on him. And know what the Father did? Judged him on Calvary. He suffered in your place. He died for you. That satisfied justice. God is just. He just can't say, okay, everybody come to heaven. It's not how this is going to work. He's just. It's who he is. He's not changing that. That satisfied justice. Now get this. Jesus wasn't just a man as we know. He was God and is God. After three days and three nights, guess what? Hell didn't hold him. He defeated death and rose again. When God judges you and puts you in hell, you have no power to leave. None. Now, let's look at your name over here. That's removed over here. Is there any sin? None. You've been made righteous. We call that justification unto life. The only way to escape that very real place through hell is just what Jesus Christ himself said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He meant it. Don't follow false teaching. Well, God has... God, I've heard these huge name preachers saying, well, God has sheep and other fools. Listen to me. Jesus Christ wasn't lying when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The one who's lying would be those who contradict that statement. They're lying to you. Now, the question is this, though. How do we switch the names? We know this Christ died for all. He's not willing that any should perish, the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance. But we know few there be that find it. Christ said so. How do we switch the names? How does Christ's death, who died for all, become effectual in my life? How does what he did save me from judgment? Two key words, repentance and faith. I'm going to give you an example that we have in Scripture of it. And that is the thief on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, we have two men dying with him on each side. One ends up in eternity in heaven and one ends up in hell. Now get this, both asked for help. Christ ignored one and saved the other. Here's how that went. They're dying. Something happened to change the one of the thief's minds. We don't know what. But they're dying, and the one thief speaks up. 
He says to the Lord Jesus Christ, If thou be the Christ, get us down. Now, notice a few things about him. Multitudes will miss true salvation because they simply ask God to save them from a circumstance. That's it. They asked God to save him from a circumstance. Only thing he wanted was down from the cross. That's what he asked. Christ never acknowledges that man. The other man speaks up. Now, look at what he knew. It wasn't a lot, but it was important. He said to the other man, the other thief, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. This man, notice what he said, had done nothing wrong. Nothing. Notice what he asked for now. He never asked to come down from the cross. He said, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. The Lord turned to him and said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Somehow the names got switched. What just happened? Two key things, repentance and faith, took place right there at that moment. What he was afraid of the second thief, was standing before Almighty God in judgment. He knew he was guilty. He knew what was going to happen to him. So he went to the only one who could possibly help him and placed his faith in him, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever else he was trusting in, that was gone. He recognized his sinful condition. I realize how horrible I am. I know you're the only answer. And he placed his faith in Christ. That's salvation. He turned to the Lord. He placed his faith solely in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is unmerited favor. It's God through his grace willing to die for you. It's you recognizing all that Christ did turning from whatever else you've been trusting in. It's not adding Jesus Christ to what you already believe. Do you understand that? It's turning from it. It's seeing the direction of your life that sin is takes you away. This is wrong. Seeing what he did for you and you making that decision. Seeing, wait, he died for me. And you place your faith in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's you putting your faith in Jesus Christ, now get this, alone. Nothing else. With heads bowed and